have uh, in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. And if you're looking in one of the Black House Bibles in front of you, it's on page 811. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able, as I read this aloud, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Darren, come on up. I'll pray for you. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance to gather. I pray, God, that you will open our eyes by your Holy Spirit to see truth from your word this morning. God, to see you for who you truly are. God, would you expose us for who we truly are as well? Help us to see our need for you, for where we are clinging to lesser loves. Father, empower Darren even in this moment, um, speak to and through him, make us more and more into your people that you have created and called us to be. We love you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, hopefully the mic won't explode in anybody's ears or mine. Um, Good morning. It's honestly really nice to see so many people, so many familiar faces. I was talking to, I think it was Banga before we got started about coffee, and today is one of those days where I feel like I really need it. I don't even like coffee, but there comes a point in every man's life where he goes through a transition from childhood to maturity and I guess eventually starts to drink coffee. I don't know. Maybe I'm at that point. Not sure yet. Um, but. But yeah, it's been a while since I've been in the pulpit. I'm excited to be back and preaching for you guys. Um, it's really a privilege. Um, I, I do kind of want to jump right in because this is a very weighty, sobering passage. Um, there's a lot I could say. And we've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount together for some time now. Um, and, the, and the context to this verse today is that Jesus is talking about the kingdom. He's talking about the values, the ethics of the kingdom, what it means to be a Christian. And, and commentators note that there's this sort of dichotomy. There's these two paths that Jesus is laying out before the people. On the one hand, in verses 19, uh, in verse 19, we see that Jesus is laying out two kinds of treasures, right? There's treasures on earth, there's treasures in heaven. And then in verses 22 through 23, there are two kinds of eyes. There's the healthy eye that looks to God. And then as Aaron preached about, there's the greedy eye, right, that, that looks at darkness and becomes dark. And then when we get to the next portion of Matthew, we'll see that there are two kinds of preoccupations that you can have. You can be concerned with the here and now, or you can be concerned with the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And this morning we look at two kinds of masters, two kinds 
of masters. You can have God, or you can have money, what I'm going to call mammon, as your master. And so the main point of this text is very clear, right? It's only one verse. The fact is, Christians can't serve God and mammon. Simply put, this passage is a call to check your allegiance. This passage, as difficult as it is, is so important for us to understand today because the love and the service of money is the air that our culture breathes and the lens through which everyone sees. Christmas is right around the corner, as Jeff mentioned. Um, And despite all of the warm wishes and gentle nudges to be more generous, we all really want to be better off financially, don't we? We all want to be a little wealthy, if we're honest. You see, what I'm going to tell you this morning is really important because Christians and religious people in general, generally speaking, we don't think of ourselves as greedy. We don't think of ourselves as materialistic or consumeristic. In fact, there's a lot of spiritual blindness when it comes to this issue. And my job this morning is that by the Spirit's power, I want to help you see what it is that we are wrestling with. And so let me preview where I want to take us. There are four things, four things this morning. Number one, I want to explain what mammon, or what the passage calls money, is. What, what is mammon? That's the first thing. The second thing is I want to explain a way in which you can tell if you are enslaved to mammon, how to tell if you're enslaved to it. Thirdly, I want to explain why mammon is a terrible master. And lastly, I want to explain how to get out of slavery. Number one, what mammon is. Now, like I said, the the meaning of this passage is pretty clear, right? No one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. But there's a depth to what Jesus is saying, and I think if we don't understand the Greek word behind the word mammon, or money, excuse me, we, we miss out on the meaning. That Greek word is, of course, if I, as I've mentioned, is mammon, okay? You won't see this in your ESV unless you look at the, the footnote there, but you will see it in the King James, The word mammon is not just money, but it's also possessions and property, okay? Possessions and property. Mammon is is kind of about wealth, and wealth is more robust than just how much money you and I make each paycheck. While there are technical ways to define wealth, a simple way to think about it is this. Wealth is the money that you have and the money that you could have from selling what you do have. That's confusing. I'll say it one more time. Wealth is the money that you have and it's the money that you could have from selling what you already have. And you see that is significant because we can be tempted to think that this passage only applies to the wolves on Wall Street or Big Pharma, but 
Jesus just said you can't serve money in a sort of generic sense, then most of the audience would have been tempted to check out. Because how could they, poor, destitute listeners, how could they be worshiping something that they didn't have much of at all? But Jesus is going deeper than that, right? Jesus is talking to an audience that is poor, yet he tells them it is possible for even you to serve mammon. How much more seriously should we take Jesus' warning for us today, right? When, when, when we live in a culture where most of us are so well off, especially when we consider ourselves to the rest of the world, you know, most of us have something in our name, right? A, a car, a bike, clothes, video games, instruments, a TV, a house, a phone, right? And Jesus is saying it's possible to worship and serve those things. It is possible to worship what you have, but of course it's possible to worship what you don't have. And so that's what mammon is. It is more than just your money. It is more than just your stuff. It's what you could have. It's what you could have. So, Jesus is calling us to check our allegiance this morning. But of course, let's, let's dig a bit deeper. How do you know that you are serving what I'm calling, what the Bible calls mammon? How, how do you know, right? How do you know that you're enslaved to mammon? And this is where I want to spend most of my time this morning, and this is where I want to prayerfully ask you to approach this with humility. Because most of us, this passage isn't for us, right? We read this and we think of other people, right? But so many of us have split our allegiance between God and mammon. So many of us are greedy. You see, there, there, there's a lot of sins. <laughs> there's a lot of sins that we're more willing to confess because we see more clearly, right? Lust, anger, bitterness, pride, right? We, we can see those things. We don't have a problem with that. But, but when's the last time you've went to a prayer meeting and the, and the church corporately lamented greed? When's the last time you had a DNA, our discipleship group, meeting where, where the person sitting across from you said, I need help because I'm greedy? It doesn't happen. Why? Because we're blind. We tend to think that God is concerned with how we feel about him. Never mind what we do with our money. But the thing is, Jesus won't tolerate our moral sidestepping because we must, as 21st century believers in the West who have access to untold amounts of mammon, we have to reckon with this question. Are, 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 are we enslaved? Are you enslaved? Am I enslaved? We need to ask ourselves honestly here, 
How can we tell if we're serving money? The first thing we have to do is understand the slave and master paradigm. The slave and master paradigm here in the text. In this passage, Jesus says that each and every one of us are like slaves, believe it or not. We all have someone or something that we regard as master, and the emphasis here is that life is a choice between two competing masters. Now, for some of us, it's important for me to, to point this out, for some of us, for, for some of us this idea of, of slavery is kind of maybe hard to tolerate. It's problematic, right? Because for us, when we, when we hear slavery, we think of, you know, antebellum slavery, slave trade, that kind of thing. We think of racist slave owners in the South. Okay? But that's not, that's not what the text is referring to. Because, the Jesus, because Jesus, the slavery that he was dealing with was not that kind of slavery. It's very different than the slavery in the South, okay? Um, there was a kind of slavery that was regulated in the Old Testament, okay? And then there was the Roman slavery, which was probably what Jesus is referring to here in the text. In both forms of slavery, you could willingly enter into. Uh, people often would, in fact, to pay off their debt or something like that. Sometimes people entered into slavery under a sort of contract, and after a few years, they would be freed. There was no sense in which your children's children's children would be slaves. There was no racial element to the slavery. It, it wasn't perfect by, by any means, but it was different. Yet, despite the differences between the slavery that we think of and the slavery practiced in Jesus' day, both forms of slavery have this in common. As a slave, you give up your rights. As a slave, you give up your autonomy. As a slave, your goal is to please your master. As a slave, your time, your talent, your treasures, they're used for the purpose of your master. As a slave, where you go, if you go, what you eat, what you do, who you even associate with, even when you wake up and go to sleep, is determined by the master. Now, my question is this. If that's the paradigm that Jesus is operating from, do you relate to your money like that? You see, most of us think of God as an employer. You can kind of bargain with him. You can almost set your own terms of agreement, actually. You can worship him during the week, but you do need your weekends off, of course. You see, if God is just a boss, then of course you can have two employers. But Jesus says... God is a master. And if you're going to have a Christian life and live by the ethics of the kingdom, God must be who he is. Master. And slaves don't have two. God can't be relegated to some part of your life and not others without you inevitably hating him. Without you loving him less than that which you are compromising with. What Jesus is doing with this imagery, this paradigm, is that he's taking us back, taking us back to the first commandment, which is all about idolatry. So with that paradigm in mind, we have to ask ourselves a few hard questions, and this is a litmus paper test for us, these questions that I'm going to ask. I'm not a chemist, but the point of a litmus paper test is you have this solution before you. You don't want to get hurt by trying to figure out what it is by sticking your finger in there, so you have a litmus paper and you stick it in there, and you can determine the acidity of it. 
That's what these questions are. So, here we go. Five questions to tell if you're serving mammon. Number one, do you give sacrificially and regularly to the church? Or does the thought of giving more to the church scare or frustrate you? I don't know if you've thought about this, but we live in a world in which millions upon millions of people have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason why some of them have not heard the gospels is not because there aren't willing people, but because they're stingy Christians in churches who don't give, who don't support, who don't care. I came across a statistic earlier today that said somewhere only around 5% of churchgoers tithe. 5%. Now, at this point you may say, well, tithing, that's an Old Testament concept. Fair enough. But without getting into it too much, I want you to follow me here. If in the Old Testament God says give 10%, and the old covenant is a, is a covenant that's passed away, and it's been superseded by a newer, greater, more robust covenant with a better Savior, with better blessings. Should we really expect God's people to give less? The problem is the church as a whole is in love with their money. And I'm not just talking about so-called prosperity gospel churches. Secondly, do you share your stuff in your home with other people? And I don't just mean with people who can return the favor. Because I love to throw parties and barbecues, but I suck at this too. It's very easy to just invite people we know and are comfortable with. Thirdly, do you care too much when things that you own break? Does it make you anxious, frustrated? Or do you care too little when things break? And you're actually just irresponsible because who cares if I break it? My mom and dad can just buy me a new one. Fourthly, are you stingy? Are you the kind of person that holds on to every dime you can and you end up always buying the cheapest thing? You know, you're the aunt at Christmas who always gets the worst gifts. Because for you, you're not stingy, you're just thrifty. You're not stingy, you're just resourceful. Fifthly, the other side of the coin, do you give because it makes you feel good about yourself? You know, it is possible to really be generous and still be enslaved to mammon. Maybe you're the kind of person who walks by someone who's homeless and you give money to them, not because you really want to see them better off, but because it just makes you feel good so you don't feel guilty walking away. You see, it's much easier to give a $5 bill to someone than to sit down and have a conversation with them and ask them what they really need. That takes time. That takes effort. For you, if you're in this situation, 
Ironically, your generosity is actually done out of a desperate reliance on money because it gives you your sense of worth. Now, I do want to say I praise God for so many of you because so many of you give generously. And I've been blessed by the ways in which some of you guys have helped me out and have served the church. So God says thank you. He sees that. If you are giving sacrificially, the Father in heaven is looking at you right now, clapping his hands. Proud of you. But if only the church as a whole could take on that posture. So, let's transition here. We've seen what mammon is. Mammon is more than money. It's our wealth, and we all have it to some degree. Secondly, we've seen how to determine whether or not we serve mammon. We have to apply this slave-master paradigm and ask hard questions of ourselves. That's the second thing we've seen. The third thing I want us to talk about is why mammon is, is, is such a terrible master. And we have, to, we have to ask this. We have to, we have to figure this out because the first step to repentance is actually seeing how worthless your sin is. Thirdly, why mammon is a terrible master. There are many tensions in the Bible. <laughs> um, that's probably an understatement. Some of them are much harder to resolve than others. Um... But when it comes to idolatry, this, is, this can be difficult, right? Because on the one hand, um, we're told to be on guard against idols and, and to forsake false worship, right? We, we've heard that before. But on the other hand, we're told that idols are nothing. Which one is it? Are idols nothing? Or do we need to like run away from them and, and you know, be on guard against them? Well, there's really no contradiction here, but there is a way in which we can square the two. The way we do so is by going back to the garden, going back to Genesis, unpacking what we see unfolding there. At creation, God made us and everything totally good, totally upright, including all of the silver and the gold, which we have historically used to back our money. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with a $20 bill or silver coin, okay? God made us as social creatures to interact with and serve each other, but first and foremost, he made us as worshipers of him where he is of the highest value and good and where we worship God as our master, which is how we find our freedom. That's what we see at creation. But then at the fall, in Genesis 3 and afterwards, we, we see that there was, according to Romans 1, there was an exchange that happened in which humans exchanged the glory and the beauty of God for the created thing. And what was it that we exchanged God's glory for? Ourselves. Ourselves. In their pride, Adam and Eve exchanged God's glory for their own sense of autonomy. And the result of that exchange is that humans love to deify the creation. 
And so, as it comes to idolatry, it's as though the heart and the creation, they enter into this toxic, almost symbiotic relationship whereby we willingly and sinfully submit ourselves to the created thing as servants. That's the argument in Romans 6. And in so doing, Satan uses strongholds in our thinkings, errors in our thinkings and in our heart to ruin us and everything else around us. You see, we're all worshiping someone or something, and we often worship and serve mammon because, if we're honest, it, it gives us a sense of security, gives us meaning and power, the praise of people, pleasure, experience, all sorts of things. Mammon, like all the other idols of the world and of the heart, mammon is something that we can control. Mammon is our culture's idol of choice because it's one of the most efficient ways of worshiping the self. And the reason why mammon is such a terrible master is because like all idols, it doesn't deliver what it says it would. Mammon does not offer what we truly want and what we truly need, which is salvation. Mammon cannot offer us a trip back into the garden where we were totally secure and everything was provided for us. And so, what have we done? In our collective choosing to worship mammon over God, God has and God will continue to judge us. But not by sending down fire and brimstone. God works differently than that. God has told America that if you want to serve mammon so badly, go ahead. See where that taskmaster will take you. If you want to serve mammon, go ahead and spend the thousands of dollars on that vacation. You'll spend your time working, not resting. You want mammon? Well, don't be surprised when people are wasteful and our environment collapses. You want mammon? Here's the job you've been asking for, but don't be surprised if you feel like just another cog in the machine. You want mammon? Well, here's the approval of strangers, but you won't have love. You want mammon? Here's the newest gadget, but don't be surprised when it breaks in two years. All of us iPhone users. You want mammon? Go ahead. Get your son the new pair of Jordans. But don't be surprised when you can't pay for math tutoring. Church, it's not that money or mammon is the issue. The scriptures never say that money is the issue. The scriptures say that the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not about whether you use money, but if money is using you. Listen to these verses in Scripture that describe why mammon is such a terrible master. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10 and 15 says that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Proverbs 30, 
verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you, Lord, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me the falsehood of lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. Proverbs 23. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. See, this is the problem with mammon. It won't, it won't do what it says it will do. But the last thing I want to explain, brothers and sisters, is how we get out. We've seen what mammon is. We've seen the questions that we need to ask ourselves. We've seen the slave master paradigm. We've seen why mammon is such a terrible master. And lastly, I want to talk about how we get out. The fact is that a great many people are aware of the issues with consumerism and materialism. You won't go to the library without finding a book that, you know, trashes the harms of materialism. It's there by God's common grace. People are thinking about these issues. And of course, people have all sorts of ideas as to why and how to fix it. But wisdom on our end as Christians, is being able to, to discern the difference between something that's helpful and something that's the solution. In our culture, we see three kinds of so-called solutions. And I want to expose them as being inadequate. The first solution is asceticism. Asceticism. What is this? This is basically the idea that what's wrong with the world is Something out there, right? Not what's in here, but something out there. And so it's this impulse which drove people in the medieval ages to move into monasteries and convents. But asceticism still exists today, with people removing themselves from the world and most things in the culture. You even have this in some popular forms of religion, uh, Buddhism maybe, for example. But it is still possible to be an ascetic and still worship and serve mammon. How? I know you're probably scratching your head. You see, it's about the slave master paradigm. Much of Buddhism and asceticism is driven by fear. And you know what? You only fear the things that are stronger and more powerful than you. Like, I'm not scared of squirrels. I'm really not. But I am scared of lions. And there's a reason I tremble when I get near them and why I don't play around in that, in that cage in the St. Louis Art, or Museum like, or uh, Zoo, right? You go to the zoo. You see those huge spaces with the lions and stuff. I'm not in there. I don't, I don't want to be in there. Because I'm scared. I'm terrified. I respect the lion. I know its power. But the person who fears money is the person who still has mammon in the place of master because mammon is determining what they can and can't do. You can't go out into the world because that's where the mammon is. It might corrupt you. You can't live in New York City because lots of mammon. You can't have money because it might ruin your relationships. 
You can't have mammon because it's going to make you materialistic. I mean, it might, but who says it has to? Because the problem isn't mammon. It's the love of it. So we need to figure out how to reorient our loves. And it's not by running away and demonizing the creation. The second solution that's offered is what's called minimalism. Minimalism. But once again, you can be all into minimalism and having two knives and only one plate um, and still be obsessed with mammon. There's an article I was reading that I want to share with you guys. This is a long one, so please hold on. Please, please hold on with me, okay? Um, I'll read it quickly, though it is fairly long. Okay. Um, What first got me thinking more critically about minimalism was an article I read a few years back in the New York Times. I live, I mean, side note, I li- who starts an article by all caps, I live? It just sounds angry. Anyways, I live in a 420-square-foot studio. I sleep in a bed that folds down from the wall. I have six dress shirts. I have ten shallow bowls that I use for salads and main dishes. When people come over, I pull, my extendable dining table, pull out my extendable dining room table. I don't have a single CD or a DVD, and I have 10% of the books I once did. I both enjoyed Hill's story, so this is the writer reflecting on the story, They say, I both enjoyed Hill's story and felt bugged by it, and I couldn't figure out the reason for my latter reaction until I came across another essay by a man named Charlie Lloyd. They say this, wealth is not a number of dollars. It's not a number of material possessions. It's having options and the ability to take on risk. If you see someone on the street dressed like a middle-class person, say, in clean jeans and a striped shirt, how do you know whether they're lower class or middle class? I think one of the best indicators is how much they're carrying. Lately, I've been mostly on the lower end of middle class. I think about this when I have to deal with my backpack, which is considered déclassé in places like art museums. My backpack has my three-year-old laptop. Because it's three years old, the battery doesn't last long, and I also carry my power supply. It has my paper and pens in case I want to write or draw, which is rarely. It has a cable to charge my old phone. It has gum, sometimes snacks, sunscreen, water bottle in the summer, a raincoat, gloves, winter, maybe a book in case I get bored. If I were rich, I would carry a MacBook Air. I've had many as a reader in my wallet. My wallet would serve as everything else that's in my backpack. Go out on the street and look, and I bet you'll see that the richer people are carrying less. As with caring, so with owning in general. Poor people don't have clutter because they're too dumb to see the virtue of living simply. They have it to reduce risk. When rich people present the idea that they've learned to live lightly as a paradoxical insight, they have the idea of wealth backwards. You can only have that kind of lightness through wealth. If you buy food in bulk, you need a big fridge. You can't afford to replace all the appliances in your house. You have several drunk drawers. If you can't afford car repairs, you might need a half-gutted second car of a similar model up on blocks where certain people are going to call you trailer trash. Please, if you're rich, stop examining, explaining excuse me, the idea of freedom from stuff as if it's a trick that even you have somehow mastered. The only way to own very little and be safe is to be rich. Basically, 
Minimalism is largely something only well-off people can afford to pursue because their wealth provides a cushion of safety. If they get rid of something and they need it later, they'll just buy it again. They don't need to carry much else besides a wallet when they're out and about. If they need something, they'll just buy it on the fly. No sweat. The great irony of minimalism is that while it purports to free you from a focus on stuff, it still makes stuff the focus of your life. The materialist concentrates on how to accumulate things, while the minimalist concentrates on how to get rid of those things. Ultimately, they're both centering their thoughts on stuff. Now, I don't know if this is a Christian writing this, but this is really close to the biblical insight, isn't it? You can be a minimalist and still love or be obsessed or serve mammon. The third thing that our culture tends to offer us is a sort of baseless contentment, and I'll be brief with this. What do I mean? This is the kind of book or literature or the person who says, well, you know, you just got to be thankful. I've just learned to count my, you know, my blessings, all the fortunate things that have happened to me in life. That's, that's how I'm not so tied down by the slavery of mammon. Mm. And they just look at you and wonder, why aren't you so thankful? Why, why, why are you always complaining? But, you know, giving thanks for what you have and learning how to just, just be happy for what you have is pretty impossible. It's impossible unless you have God at the center, unless God is your master. Because it's impossible to be satisfied without God. And let's say you are satisfied without God. What is that called? Idolatry. Back to square one. God is not your master. So how do we get out? How do we get out? Aestheticism won't do it. Minimalism won't do it. Having a baseless sort of contentment won't work either. What's the key? Well, the only way to get out of slavery is by becoming a slave. (laughs) It's by becoming a slave. You see, remember the slave master paradigm. We're all worshiping someone or something. And whatever we worship, we become enslaved to. There's no middle ground here. We either worship God or worship mammon. And the only way out of worshiping mammon is by submitting ourselves to God as bondservants. You see, this passage is nothing more than a call for God to be our all in all. And if you aren't worshiping this morning, if you're not worshiping God alone through Christ alone, you are not worshiping God at all. It's only when we're a slave to God that we're free to use money instead of money using us. So is God your master? Do you want God to be your master? Tim Keller tells of a time when he was in college and after a Bible study, the campus minister handed out a piece of paper with two statements on it. Very simple, very simple, and it had a line underneath for you to sign your name, okay? And the piece of paper said this. Number one, I promise to obey everything God says, whether I like it or not. Number two, I promise to thank God for everything he sends in my life, 
whether I like it or not. And then sign your name. That's it. Very simple. Now, if that doesn't terrify you, I don't know what would. Because at the heart of those questions is the simple fact that Jesus will not settle for anything less than being regarded as master. Is he your master? Is he your master? Now, I know for some of us this morning, this feels impossible, right? And if that's you, then you're in good company because it is impossible. When we're left to our own, it's impossible. We can't get out of slavery, even if we want it to. There's no way, there's no amount of effort that we could exert that allows us to overcome the idolatry in our own hearts. Each of us is like the rich young ruler who goes to Jesus with a resume and leaves in sorrow because we can't get rid of it. We can't get rid of the slavery, the bondage. We can't leave our master. But the good news this morning is that Jesus died for your and my idolatry and our slavery. And you know how he did it? He became a slave. He became a slave. Philippians 2, beautiful chapter. It says that Jesus left his infinitely glorious mammon in heaven, the riches of heaven, and he became a slave and humbled himself even to the point of death for the sake of obeying his master. He left the riches of heaven because you, a poor, miserable sinner, were more valuable to him than everything he had in heaven. How can you not serve him as master when you see this? How can you not? See, the only way to get out of slavery is by someone paying a ransom for you. And that's exactly what God has done in Christ Because after all, mammon can't redeem you. Only the blood of the lamb is sufficient enough as the redemption price to rescue a slave. You see, other taskmasters give you burdens. God is the only master that takes on your burdens. Other taskmasters make their servants pay for their mistakes. God is the only one who paid for his servant's mistakes. The slave master Mammon says that you work for me, but God says, I'll work for you and with you and through you. The slave slave master Mammon makes you work yourself into the ground, but God, our slave master, says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. The burden is light. Other slave masters say, you must serve me. But Jesus says, if I don't serve you, you don't have any part in me. Other slave masters offer freedom, but leave you enslaved. God calls us into a kind of slavery, but leaves us free. You see, it's only when we're a slave to God that we're free to use money instead of being used by it. 
That's the good news. Slavery to God. So is God your master. As I finish, Chorus, I want to say this. If you're trusting in Jesus to save you, albeit imperfectly, as we all do, you are free. You are free in the most important ways that matter. You're free from sin's bondage. You've been bought to glorify God, and by His Spirit, He's making you into a new person that relates to His creation properly. We don't use our money the same anymore. We have a generous sort of contentment. Because, after all, you can be generous and still serve mammon, but the truth is you can't serve God and fail to be generous. You can be generous and still serve mammon, but you can't serve God and fail to be generous. And the gospel does that in you. We're able to do this because our love for God is so great that it makes it look like we hate mammon. As we look to this reality, we are made into generous, sacrificial people who give everything to God. We realize that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We are simply stewards, giving to God what's rightly His, everything. We are trained as bondservants under a new kingdom, a new kingdom-centered paradigm even, where the kingdom ethics prevail in our hearts and minds as we renounce ungodliness. The riches that are ours in Christ in heaven influence, if not outright, spill over into how we live. And we wear Christ like a badge on our hearts, showing the world the secret, but not really that much of a secret to our contentment. And we live changed lives. And we await for the king in his second coming, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we'll be welcomed into our master's freedom and joy, wealthy beyond measure. This is the gospel. This is what God has done. I'm not leaving you with a bunch of things to do, but rather a savior to save you. Do you believe that? There's freedom. Wake up every day and orient yourself to the fact that God is your master. Live in the paradigm that Jesus gives us. Amen. Pray with me. Father, I want to pray through Psalm 49, which says, God, why should I be afraid in times of trouble? When the sin of those who cheat me surround me, I'm not going to trust in their wealth and their riches because no man can ransom another or give to God the price for his life. The ransom of our lives is costly and it can never suffice We're all going to see the pit. God, the wise and the fool die alike and leave their wealth to other people. We go to our graves. Man and his pride will not remain. I am thankful for that. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence that they will die and no longer be remembered, but God, you will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. You will receive me. Therefore, I will not trust in riches or wealth or mammon, whether I have it or whether I don't. We thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. Amen.